our topic, the forgiven must forgive, <clears throat> number two, and today we're going to cover the topic, is Christian forgiveness of a brother <coughs> conditional or unconditional? Is Christian forgiveness conditional or unconditional? And let me read from Ephesians 4. 31 to 32, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God and Christ forgave you. And the parallel passage you can find in Colossians 3, 12 to 13. Now thus far, we've examined the virtues necessary for forgiveness, the requirement of forgiveness, it's required. Reconciliation is not an option, we have to do it. <clears throat> um, and the meaning of forgiveness, what does it mean? But to further understand biblical forgiveness, we must examine the circumstances of forgiveness or the preconditions necessary for real forgiveness and reconciliation. This topic is necessary because many professing Christians and most unbelievers have an unbiblical view, which is that forgiveness must be unconditional. Okay, and you see this all the time if you watch court TV or if you watch crime shows where some guy will murder three people and rape and pillage and do all this stuff. And at the trial, he's laughing and he's mocking and he's uh, mocking the victims and then he's convicted of murder, he gets the death penalty or whatever, and then they're all, oh, we forgive you. No repentance, no remorse, nothing. We forgive you, and then everybody thinks that's pious, and that's the Christian thing to do. <clears throat> this extension of forgiveness is generally viewed by the public as a great act of piety. The view that forgiveness must be unconditional is set forth by the Lutheran commentator R.C.H. Lenski, and I could quote other commentators. It's a pretty common view. Quote, Let us put this plainly, since even pastors misunderstand it. The moment a man wrongs me, I must forgive him. Then my soul is free. If I hold the wrong against him, I sin against God and against him, and jeopardize my forgiveness with God. Whether the man repents, makes amends, asks my pardon or not, makes no difference. I have instantly forgiven him. He must face God with the wrong he has done, and but that is his affair and God's and not mine, save that in the case he is a brother, I should help him according to Matthew 18, 15, etc. But whether this succeeds or not, and even before this begins, I must forgive him. End of quote. And you'd be surprised. It's a pretty common view. Is it true or not? Well, let's find out. Let's see what the scriptures say. The problem with the idea that one must forgive a brother unconditionally, no matter what the sinning offender does, whether he repents or not, is that it explicitly contradicts passages that speak of the Christian reconciliation process. We're going to go into great detail here because I want to I want to really prove what I'm saying and not sound, you know, if people don't agree with me, they'll think I'm crazy. Note, for example, Luke 17, 3 to 4. Take heed to yourselves. This is Jesus speaking. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times in a day returns to you saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. That's Jesus speaking. The verb rebuke, rebuke epitimao, in this context, refers to a loving admonition designed to help the offender understand his guilt in the matter and repent of it before God. Bob, here's the sin you did. You sinned against me. This is what you did. Here's a scriptural passage that proves what you did is a sin and why it's wrong. Will you repent? Oh, Joe, I, 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 you're right. I did sin. I acknowledge my guilt. I confess it. 
before God and you, I repent. Will you forgive me? That's what Jesus says. To simply forgive without a compassionate, kind, loving confrontation of sin would be harmful to the offending party. When the condition of repentance is fulfilled, the forgiveness and reconciliation must be granted. You can't forgive somebody and continue to hate them and gossip or whatever. You really must forgive. The emphasis on our Lord's teaching here is on a readiness and willingness to forgive, even repeatedly, if necessary. The offended party is to seek out the offender, confront him about his sin in a humble, loving, compassionate manner, and then totally forgive him if he repents. That is what Jesus said. And the word repentance means that he admits his sin, confesses his wrong, and asks for forgiveness. You know, like with God. We have to confess our sins to God, admit our guilt, confess our sins, and ask for forgiveness. And of course, we have to repent. You don't be all, you know, you don't be all, well, I'm going to go murder somebody. I'm going to confess it now, but I'm going to go kill somebody. That's not how it works. Now, if a sin is a crime, a scandalous sin, a public sin, and involves something such as theft, adultery, or violence, then biblical law tells us that repentance involves the appropriate restitution. You steal somebody's lawnmower. And the guy comes over, hey, I, you know, you stole my lawnmower. I need you to repent and give it back. He said, well, I'm sorry I stole your lawnmower, but I'm going to keep it. That's not repentance. When particular sins are acknowledged and restitution is made, then forgiveness is, is, to, is to be extended. And I say that because if, if, if you don't agree with that, then if somebody commits a serious crime and you forgive them, then you, they wouldn't be penalized for the crime. But they have to be penalized civilly. All sin is ultimately against God, but God requires justice for a biblical social order. The person wronged by a crime must receive restitution. The Bible tells us how to make restitution. A sincere repentance desires to fulfill the law's requirement of restitution. When theologians, pastors, and professing Christians speak of an unconditional forgiveness without repentance and restitution, then they not only unwittingly support an antinomian social order, but actually bring harm to the offender in that his repentance is not sought and his evil behavior is rewarded. And that's why liberalism, I mean, progressivism, left-wing wokeism today is so destructive to society. There's no accountability. There's no demand for any kind of repentance or restitution because they think in terms of categories. You're white, you're black, you're rich, you're poor. It's all categories. You're guilt by association. <clears throat> Forgiveness and reconciliation without repentance does not establish real peace in churches or society for the evil offensive behavior remains. Now, the need to seek repentance for forgiveness and reconciliation is also expressed in Matthew 18, 15 to 22, which is kind of a parallel to Luke 17, although it goes into much more detail. And this is the teaching of Christ himself. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, and that's a Hebrewistic saying, if he, he, he obeys what you say, you've gained your brother. But if you will not hear, take with you one or two more, that is, witnesses, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. That's a quote from the Old Testament law. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. And by that, of course, we mean the church session, the elders. But if he refuses to even hear the church, let him be like to you like a heathen and a tax collector. That refers to excommunication. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it shall be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. And, and then Peter said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? 
up to seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. In other words, there's not a limitation on Christian forgiveness when the reconciliation process is carried out and the person repents. So, you know, this, this thing, well, you, you've done this before, I'm not going to forgive you. No, you have to forgive him if he repents again. The statement, if he hears you, is equivalent to if he agrees with you and repents. Now, we have to point out that the passages of the New Testament speak of reconciliation and forgiveness. All of these passages are discussing Christians. If believers are sinned against by unbelievers, there is no biblical obligation to seek reconciliation with them. However, Paul does say, this is Romans 12, 18, if it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. So we have to love unbelievers. Jesus made that clear. We have to treat them lawfully. We have to be kind and merciful toward them. <coughs> Heap coals upon their head, Paul says. Christians should do everything within the parameters of God's law to get along with the heathen. And of course, believers should not badmouth and hate unbelievers. Now, obviously, when somebody's a wicked politician or somebody's lying and doing this, it's not a sin to point that out for the sake of trying to have a godly social order. But just insulting people, like what Trump does, I don't know why Christians love Trump so much, he's, he divorced his wife, he's an adulterer, and he lies a lot, and he's an egomaniac. Now, better than the Democrats? Way better. I would never vote for a Democrat in 100 years. But he's certainly not a Christian. But unbelievers are not part of the body of Christ and are not under the authority of the church. That's the three-step pattern of church discipline in Matthew 18, 15 and following. Obviously, it does not apply to them. You can't take them to the elders. They don't care if they're excommunicated. They're already outside the body of Christ. In the world, unbelievers often sin against Christians. And often the best thing for a Christian to do is simply forget about it and move on. They're pagans. Don't expect them to act like a Christian. Now, if a pagan lies to you and cheats and rips some money off or something, take him to court. You know, civil court. But just try to be at peace with them. You're not going to get a pagan to act like a Christian. That's just not going to happen. But when a Christian sins against another Christian in such a way that simply cannot be covered over with love, ignoring the sin is not an option. So sin must be dealt with or it will eventually destroy the peace and purity of the church. All Christians are required to reflect the love of Christ in their behavior toward other believers. So when people don't follow this process, it's very clear in Matthew 18. And instead they gossip. And they trash the person behind the back. And they don't go to them personally and privately, just like Jesus said. Those people are in sin, and they show that they are not loving their brother at all. They're acting like pagans. They're hating their brother. <clears throat> and the background of this, of course, is Leviticus 19. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. We'll look at that in a moment. <coughs> Where there is no repentance, a secondary or even two witnesses are brought in to help with the admonition and serve as eyewitnesses if the next step is necessary. If... <coughs> If the corporate admonition succeeds and repentance is accomplished, then reconciliation is achieved and the problem is resolved right then and there. It doesn't have to go any further. It only remains between the, offended, the offender and the witnesses and the person that was offended. It's done. doesn't need to go to the session or the church elders. doesn't need to go before the whole church. It's done. But if the second step fails, the problem goes before the whole church, the local church authorities, the elders of the session, and the professing Christian is given a third distinct opportunity to admit their sin and, and repent. Now, let me just say, if you're a Baptist or an independent, uh, they take the thing, take it before the church, uh, the passage where two or three agree, it, Christ is, according to, he's very likely talking about elders there. But what an independent or a Baptist traditionally will do is they'll have a church meeting and they'll bring the offender before everybody in the whole church and then they'll make a decision what to do with that person. And that's 
clearly contradicts the Old Testament way the elders worked in the Old Testament. And it, it is really quite dumb and doesn't really work very well. You want trained men, and obviously we're presupposing the elders are qualified. Most elders today are not. But if they're qualified, they'll make the right decision judicially. If they do not repent, they are not forgiven, as if nothing happened, but instead are excommunicated, and consequently, according to Christ, must be treated as a heathen or a corrupt tax collector. That's what Jesus said. <clears throat> the idea that believers must forgive a sinning brother, whether he repents or not, explicitly contradicts Christian uh, Christ's teaching. The presupposition of this section of Scripture is that forgiveness and reconciliation is conditional. Repentance. If you forgive him and he hasn't repented and say, go, be well, everything's fine with you, you're not helping your brother. And Jay Adams, who's uh, written an excellent book on this topic, um, I went to seminary with his son back in the late 70s, um, and I think Jay Adams on counseling and these kind of matters is the best. I think he's still the best. Um, writes this, quote, If we were to grant forgiveness to a brother apart from his repentance and desire for forgiveness, then why bother with the process? One could simply say, I forgive you and walk away. <coughs> the whole point of the progressive nature of Christ's program of discipline is that where there is no repentance, increasingly larger efforts are made to bring it about. The matter cannot simply be dropped by saying, I forgive you, whether you repent or not. God is not interested in forgiveness as an end in itself or as a therapeutic technique that benefits the one doing the forgiving. He wants reconciliation to take place, and that can only be brought about by repentance. Let me just stop for a moment. Okay, guy borrowed your lawnmower. He's a Christian. He's in, you're members of the church. He says, I'm not going to give it back. I like this lawnmower. It's great. I'm keeping it. And you're all, look, John, I need my lawnmower back. To say, I forgive you, I, <laughs> repent, let him keep your lawnmower, you're not doing anybody any favors. Continuing, if we were to forgive brothers and sisters purely on their own, apart from any whisper, of repentance, and in doing so, we promise them not to bring up the matter ever again to them, to others, or to ourselves. Yet that is exactly what the process of church discipline requires us to do. Bring it up again and again and again to them and to others until rep repentance and reconciliation are affected or the rebellious brother is evicted from the church. End of quote. Now, the reason I quoted that is because that's a brilliant point. I wish I had thought of it myself. If you simply say, I, I forgive you, Bob, <laughs> according to the definition of forgiveness, which is you're not allowed to bring it up and you're not allowed to think about it and you're not allowed to tell anybody about it, it means you drop the matter once and for all, well, then the whole rest of the discipline process would be would stop right there, but it doesn't. According to Scripture, when there are sins involved that are serious enough that a loving, compassionate confrontation is necessary, the result must either be reconciliation and forgiveness or excommunication and a public declaration of guilt. Those are the only two options that Matthew 18 gives us, and of course, the epistles. Those are the only two options. For example, Corinthians, where a guy uh, was fornicating and he was excommunicated. And then if they're talking about the same person in 2 Corinthians, Paul says, hey, you guys have to forgive, you know, he repented. You have to forgive this guy. Make sure you forgive this guy. Stop talking about it. <clears throat> It is not kind, compassionate, or wise to ignore sin. Make some excuse or simply wait and see if things blow over. If sins are swept under the rug or simply are turned into occasions for gossip, that's usually what happens in churches today, they will not be dealt with properly. Sin problems never blow over. 
They must be faced biblically until confession and repentance occurs. <clears throat> Here's a couple of great passages. Proverbs 28, 13. He who covers his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. So if somebody's in sin and you let them slide, you're not doing them any favors. You're, you're hurting them. You're not loving them. See, the world looks at love as, oh, let them do it. Love is permissive. Love is antinomian. But that's not the Bible's view of love. Love is you work for their edification. You want to retrieve them. You want to help save them in, in, in the sanctification sense. Many, many years ago, there was a woman who left her husband. And I was the, the moderator of the session. They, they voted to discipline her for leaving her husband. She wouldn't even talk to the elders. <coughs> and um, this uh, the guy who was married to her, happened to be an elder, resigned from the session, and then he tried to get her uh, discipline overturned. She was basically barred from the Lord's table until she repented and uh, returned to her husband. And then she was required to get some counseling. That's all she had to do. Just return to your husband and get some counseling. Everything will be fine. You, got, you can't leave your husband. He didn't do anything wrong. Well, to make a long story short, the uh, husband decided he wanted to take his wife back no matter what. So the way he got her back was he agreed to a whole laundry list of things that were unchristian, and then she agreed to come back. No more Christian school, going to move away from the church, going to live in the big city, yada, yada, yada. And she got everything she wanted. She gave him a list, a laundry list, and he submitted to his ungodly wife, submitted to her, and then left the church and tried to bring me up on charges and got a, a corrupt pastor who's very wicked to cooperate with them. And I was in, I was brought up on charges for, quote, being unloving. Okay, now, keep in mind, four elders voted for her conviction, given the evidence. I didn't even vote. I'm a moderator. I don't vote. But they brought me up on charges and not the four elders. But what is the result of that, being permissive? Look, I got my wife back. That's all I care about. I don't care if she repents. I got my wife back. What is the result of that? None of them are Christians today. They're all pagans. The whole family. You don't do anybody a favor with a worldly, corrupt view of love. You have to stick to what the Scripture says. You have to obey the moral law of God. And you have to follow Scripture. And that's how to love somebody. Now, you can speak to them and gently. You can be kind. You can be compassionate. Your goal is retrieval. You don't have to be nasty. You have to be kind and forbearing and all these things. But you can't compromise with evil. You have to request, you have to demand repentance. James 5, 16, confess your trespasses one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The goal must always be genuine forgiveness for without it, reconciliation has not occurred. And for genuine forgiveness, there must be repentance. There's simply no way to get around that. The inspired and authoritative instructions of Jesus and Paul do not allow for what most frequently occurs in churches today. And I've been around a long time. I've been in the OPC, the PCA, the OPC, Reformed Baptist churches. I've been around a long time which is to not confront the person who is supposedly to be guilty of sin, but rather gossip about it behind his back. Or, there is a hostile, unloving, superficial confrontation, and the matter is dropped without the full reconciliation process taking place. The situation then is usually followed by copious amounts of gossip and some form of shunning, without any forgiveness, reconciliation, or, if necessary, any biblical authorized church discipline. Remember, according to Jesus, 
there are only two possibilities. Repentance, if you follow the process biblically, repentance, or excommunication. There's not a third category, which is, well, we're just going to gossip about it and trash the person behind his back, and we don't care if he repents or not. <clears throat> the situation... In other words, professing Christians often act like pagans instead of Christians, and that's sad to say. As a member and an observer of presbyteries, many RPCNA presbyteries, uh, some OPC presbyteries, not a lot, a couple, in the past that I regard as corrupt, I have been astonished to witness supposedly conservative pastors and elders conduct they conduct governmental affairs like Roman Catholics, and that's because they have a prelatical Romanist view of church authority. <clears throat> Completely ignoring the clear teachings of Scripture in order to embrace and practice a humanistic, autonomous form of pragmatism. I observed an older, a prominent older pastor, Bragg, brag about how they they avoided biblical procedures. They never followed the Matthew 18 process. They never had trials. They deliberately avoided procedures or trials that required witnesses and evidence because they liked to handle everything behind the scenes. They thought that was wonderful because they're not their commitment in this area is to pragmatism, not to scripture. We don't have trials. We don't really have witnesses and all that stuff. We do what we want. What is that? That's called Romanism. They believe that the unity of the church was better served through humanistic, pragmatic, underhanded, secret procedures. Let me just give you a couple examples to see why this is so important. There were a couple families that complained about a pastor. This is a church in Indiana. About Christmas. Christmas stuff that was going on. And uh, it was brought to the attention of Presbytery. And because uh, the session of that church basically told them to pound sand. It was brought to Presbytery. Presbytery says, come to Presbytery, we'll discuss it at Presbytery. So the people come up to Presbytery and what does the Presbytery do? They vote to not allow them to talk. <laughs> They vote to not allow them to talk. That is totally wicked. That's totally unscriptural. And behind the scenes, they are threatened with discipline and told to go find another church. Now, why is that? Because all these guys celebrate Christmas, and they all are covenant breakers, and they all don't care about the regular principle. And when there's something that they cannot defend scripturally, they appeal to authority. That's very common. I was at an OPC Presbytery meeting in Michigan where somebody had complained about Christmas and they all said, well, uh, this is a matter of adiaphora. This is a matter of circumstances. And if you're preaching through the Bible, you just might happen to preach on the incarnation near December 25th. That was their argument. Of course, they do it every year. So they're being totally dishonest. <clears throat> and then another situation, this is in the different Presbyterian, the RPCNA. Uh, a really, this guy is a super godly guy, and he was a pastor of a church in Colorado. These things all happened really a long time ago, so I'm not going to hurt anybody's feelings now. Uh, and his wife wore a head covering, a cloth head covering, and none of the women in that church had, ever, had done that. And uh, they complained to the pastor. And uh, what, and what happened? <laughs> they fired him. They didn't want to offend the women, a bunch of feminists. We don't want to offend the feminists in the church who are disobeying Corinthians 11. So what will we do? We'll just fire him. Now, in the early 90s, when me and my wife were in an RP church, and my wife wore a head covering, and I don't, I don't know, I think maybe one other woman did, in a pretty good-sized church, and uh, they complained, to some, a bunch of women complained to the pastor. And this pastor was honest enough and godly enough to say, hey, I can't do anything to them. First of all, it's in the Bible. It's in 1 Corinthians 11. 
And second, all the churches throughout the world did it until the 1960s. <laughs> so we're not going to threaten to discipline anybody over something that's in the Bible. But this is the state of church courts today. You've got to get this out of your head that elders have an authority apart from what the scriptures teach. They do not. Only in circumstantial matters. They can decide, well, we're going to meet at 1030 or 11 for worship. But they don't have ethical authority to make up stuff. They don't have authority in the sphere of worship to make up stuff, or church government to make up stuff. Such behavior usually occurs for two reasons. One is that people do not like and thus do not want to confront a brother, and it is much easier and more fun to simply speak about their sins and faults to others behind their back. It's not easy to go to somebody and confront them to their face about a sin. It's very uncomfortable. But if you're not willing to do that, because you don't want to be uncomfortable, then you got to shut your mouth and, and bury it under love. You're not allowed to, because what people do is they don't do that. They don't confront the person to their face. And then what do they do? They gossip about it behind their back because they have resentment inside. If you're not willing to confront someone to their faces, which Christ, which Christ commands, shut your mouth. The problem with this unbiblical but common procedure is that Jesus specifically requires a personal, private, loving confrontation, Matthew 18, 15, and following. So once again, seeking reconciliation and forgiveness is not optional. If you're unwilling, if, if somebody did something that offended you, and you're unwilling to confront them to their face in private, face-to-face, then you have to shut your mouth. You either obey scripture or you bury it in love. This is the, you, now, if you think it's a sin that is something that's serious enough you don't, that shouldn't be covered over in love, you really need to confront them face to face. No Christian has the right or authority to ignore, alter, or disobey a clear command of Jesus Christ, the King and Head of the Church. The context of Matthew 18, 15 and following is on retrieving lost sheep that is seeking them out for the purpose of saving them from their sinful predicament. That is the emphasis throughout the chapter. Church discipline is only an option if the person refuses to repent. That is, they love their sin so much and are totally self-deceived to the point where they do not want to be rescued. Somebody refuses to repent, and they're compared. They're, you know, there's clear evidence of sin, and they're confronted with two or more witnesses that of clear evidence of sin, and they they're not going to repent. They have to be disciplined. The fact that the brother who sins is given three separate, specific, separate opportunities to admit their guilt and repent before church discipline takes place is proof positive that the focus is on retrieval and reconciliation, not punishment and I've seen I've seen this where somebody offends a brother and they refuse to follow the Matthew 18 process and they refuse to forgive them because they think they ought to be punished well that's not your option the option is reconciliation and if they don't if they repent you have to forgive you have to reconcile if they don't another step, and then if they don't, then it can go to the church. And the point of the excommunication is hopefully to shock them and sober them up so they'll repent. <clears throat> Yet both Jesus and Paul, Matthew 18, and of course Ephesians 4 and Colossians 3 and other passages, emphasize that Christians must be kind, compassionate, merciful, and forgiving because God has forgiven us through Jesus Christ. And 
I, I talked about it last week, that wonderful para, uh, parable that occurs after the section of Matthew 18, where he talks about the, uh, the, the king who forgives a guy something like a million dollars, and he's unwilling to forgive somebody who owes him 10 bucks, throws him into jail. Now we're going to talk about Leviticus 19:15 to 18 for a minute for that's the background believe it or not the background of Matthew 18 and I've labeled this loving your neighbor in reconciliation. The Old Testament background of Matthew 18:15 and following is found in Leviticus 19 15 to 18. You shall do no injustice in judgment you shall not be partial to the poor nor honor the person of the mighty in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. You shall not go about as a talebearer among your people, nor shall you take a stand against the life of a neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall surely rebuke your neighbor and not bear sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Although Jesus in Matthew 22, 39 to 40, and see 19, 18 to 19, and Paul, Romans 13, 9 to 10, and Galatians 5, 14, connect the commandment to love our neighbor to the whole second table of the law. In other words, it summarizes the whole second table. The immediate context of the original command has a lot in common with Matthew 18. The following elements are necessary for peace and harmony in the covenant community. Now, Jesus will say, apply this, because the Jews hated Gentiles and treated them unfairly and unjustly. So Jesus will take this and he'll make, he says, you've got to apply this to Samaritans. You've got to apply this to Gentiles. You can't just apply this to Jews, as far as loving your neighbor, treating them lawfully, being nice and kind. <clears throat> First, there's to be no injustice, partiality, or favorable treatment to brothers in judging matters. Justice means no respect of persons due to economic status, race, connections, one's connections, okay, if they're your friends or not, or personal friendships. Issues, behaviors, teachings, words, etc. are to be judged by the standard of God's holy law. In Christian communions, factions can develop where those on one side are treated differently than those who have opposing views. And such behavior is explicitly condemned. Now, when I was in this presbytery, in Great Lakes Gulf Presbytery, now this is many, many years ago. This is over 20 years ago. So uh, I don't know what they're like now. Uh, but most of the people were really not that reformed. They were kind of like evangelicals and pragmatists. And when we examined one of their guys, for licensure to preach, they were cut an incredible amount of slack. They licensed the guy to preach who did not believe in exclusive psalmody and was not convinced of infant baptism yet. Now, when I, a conservative, who they didn't like from the start, came over from a different presbytery and they had to examine me, I got two 12-hour days and every jot and tittle was covered and Anything they could try to... <laughs> my sermon passed by one vote, and the reason was uh, too many points, too detailed. Too detailed, too many points. But anyway, that, that sermon's on the internet, by the way. It's uh, The Temptation of Eve. <coughs> so there must be no respect of persons. Even if they're your close friends, they have to be treated exactly the way you would treat somebody who you may not care for. Second, tail-bearing, gossip, and slander are forbidden. When reproof is necessary, the matter is to be, to be discussed privately, face-to-face -face with one's brother. The Bible in both Leviticus 19 and Matthew 18 is explicit. Yet, this is rarely followed. If a needed rebuke is discussed behind a brother's back, not only is his reputation seriously damaged, but strife is spread and anger can deepen, leading to more resentment and hatred. 
thereby spreading sin instead of biblically containing it through reconciliation. This is what amazes me about gossip, because people who gossip always act all pious. Oh, oh, poor this poor fellow, uh, uh, Jerry over here, he's, he's, he's really messed up. He's doing A, B, C, and D. He's really messed up. Well, how is that going to help Jerry to tell somebody else about it and not go to him? <laughs> if you have a problem with Jerry, you go to Jerry. <clears throat> Gossip and slander are evil, damaging, and destructive toward three Christians simultaneously. Think about it. They damage the reputation of the one accused and destroy his fellowship in the church outside of the biblical due process. Matthew 18, 15 and following. You could destroy his reputation forever. And one of the things about loving your brother in Leviticus 19 is you're not supposed to do that. You're supposed to go to him privately and rebuke him, thereby not only helping him repent, but protecting his reputation. That's love. Now, your blood brother, your own family, you wouldn't go trashing your own parents and your blood brother behind your back unless you're some kind of sick person. The one gossiping is guilty of sin and reveals that he, at least temporarily, is missing cr crucial Christian virtues that Jesus and Paul have emphasized. The one receiving the gossip is guilty of, of sin and is encouraging the one gossiping to continue his wicked behavior. If everyone would refuse to listen to gossip, the one who likes to gossip would have to keep his devilish mouth shut. Gossip and tailbearing are frequently condemned in Scripture, yet they remain popular and acceptable among many professing Christians. And pastors and elders are some of the worst offenders. Many, many years ago, there was a lady in the church who just loved to gossip and trash people behind their back. And uh, I confronted her once, and I says, you know, uh, how's that supposed to help them? The Bible says you're supposed to go to them and try to get them to repent of their sin. Her response was, why would I want to do that? <laughs> in other words, I like to gossip. It's fun. She didn't love her neighbor. She didn't love the person in the church. She could care two, two cents about that person. She was destructive. She had a devilish mouth. Now, although gossiping among professing Christians is usually presented as a concern for church piety, in reality, it is always negative and destructive. If someone is concerned about a brother in sin, how is telling people about it behind his back going to help him? He needs a personal face-to-face -face admonition. And I, I'm going to add it as a footnote, uh, but that, that word that Christ uses for rebuke, it mean, the, the word literally, it, it refers to confronting a person verbally for the purpose of getting conviction of sin. And of course, uh, the, the passage, Jay Adams likes to talk about neuthetic confrontation. The purpose of the admonition is for, to get them to repent. You're not there to beat them up and punish them there. You're there to convict them of sin so they repent. <clears throat> if everyone refused to listen to gossip, gossip would stop. Gossip and tailbearing are frequently condemned. Although gossip among professing Christians is usually presented as a concern for church piety, it is always bad. If someone is concerned about a brother in sin, you got to go to them. The usual excuse for gossip is that more people can pray for the person to repent. I've actually stopped going to prayer meetings because they were just, people would pray for half an hour and gossip for an hour. It was a gossip meeting more than a prayer meeting. Consequently, many prayer groups are full of gossip, which is sinful. The prayer or concern for piety excuse is explicitly refuted by Matthew 18, 15 and following, Leviticus 19, 16 to 18, and the passages that explicitly condemn gossip and talebearing. Here's a few examples, Proverbs 11, 13, 16, 27 to 28, 1 Peter 4, 15, etc. Gossip is an expression of resentment and hatred that is designed to spread that resentment and hatred to others in the church. Okay, in other words, I don't like Bob 
And I don't want other people to like Bob either. That's all it is. It's an act of hatred. Proverbs 16, 27-28 An ungodly man digs up evil and it is on his lips like a burning fire. A perverse man sows strife and a whisperer separates the best of friends. See also Proverbs uh, eleven thirteen. It's dangerous, it's destructive, it's sinful. First Peter four fifteen. let none of you suffer, and look what they place gossip in here. Let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. He places that right next to murder and thievery <laughs> and being an evil worker. And then, of course, the positive statement, Proverbs 27.5, open rebuke is better than love carefully concealed. In other words, if you really love somebody, if you really care about somebody, if you really want someone to be a better Christian, if you really care about their edification and their progress in the Christian faith, you go to them privately and you talk to them. Third, it's amazing, though, that the teaching of this passage in the Old Testament is very similar to Matthew 18. Third, hatred in the heart toward a brother is forbidden and is to be replaced by a loving rebuke. The biblical negative, which is hatred, is to be converted into a great positive. Love that reaches out to help a brother through compassionate confrontation. That is the whole context of this passage, love your neighbor as yourself. That's the context. Don't hate them in your heart. Don't trash them behind their back. Love them. Go to them. Help them. Instead of a grudge or thoughts of revenge that can lead to gossip, tailbearing, and slander, there is to be kindness and mercy that seeks to retrieve a brother from his sin. We are to love our brother as we would want to be loved. And this is not a difficult section of Scripture. This is crystal clear. Now, the statement, and not bear sin because of them, has two solid, legitimate interpretations. The majority view is that by confronting your brother and doing everything you can, biblically, to retrieve him from his sin, you are freed from the guilt of negligence, apathy, and not acting as a loving brother if your brother does not repent and continues to sin. And you remember Ezekiel 33, the watchman, where God says, look, you got to warn the people. Now, if you warn the people and they continue in sin, their blood is not on your hands. You've done your duty. But if you refuse to warn them, and leave them in their thing without trying at all, their blood is on your hands. That's the point there. You've done your duty. Like Paul in Ephesians and Colossians, the law emphasizes that reconciliation and forgiveness are not optional. We must make a sincere, serious attempt, even if our emotions are not in agreement. Remember, the, remember what we said last week. The Bible teaches the primacy of the intellect. We're not to wait till our emotions are on board. We simply obey Scripture. If you keep obeying Scripture, then your emotions will get on board. That's another area where Jay Adams is excellent. <clears throat> A second view, which is certainly true as an application and it's indeed possible, is that a loving, positive loving confrontation of our brother in private will keep us from inner hatred and holding a grudge that could break forth into outward sinful actions. Gossip, insults, violence, you know, punching somebody in the face. I was at a meeting where a, <laughs> a deacon got so angry he kicked somebody under the table. <laughs> This section of the law is the Old Testament counterpart to Matthew 18. It reveals to us the importance and the relationship of biblical love with reconciliation and forgiveness. In Christ, we all receive love, grace, and mercy. 
Therefore, as God's children, we must manifest these virtues towards all. 1 John 2.9 He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. Now, we're going to stop there. And then um, I have a very large section called Clarifications, Observations, and Applications. And I have seven, I'm going to have seven points where we're going to get into the details and we're going to talk about objections. Like, what do you do if it, with a, pub, a public sin merits a public rebuke? I remember when Doug Wilson and these guys were publishing their Federal Vision Heresy and making lectures about it in uh, 2002. And uh, some uh, pious fellows, uh, uh, what's that What's that pastor? That Oh, I forgot his name, the Theonomist pastor. Well, anyway, they critiqued it publicly and people got on their case. Well, you didn't follow Matthew 18. No, it was a public teaching. A public teaching or a public sin, you get arrested for robbing a bank or something, deserves, it, it, the first two steps are skipped and it goes right to the session. It goes right to the church court. And, and we'll look at all these things next week and, <clears throat> and get into all the details. But this is a really important topic. And this is something that we need to learn. We need to emphasize it. We need to make sure we follow it. We're, virtually everybody I know, including myself, is guilty of gossip. And we need to make sure we don't gossip and make sure we, if we have a problem with somebody, we go to them privately. And it's much better for them. It's much better for you. I know people that have been kicked out of churches for gossiping. Um, there was a situation where there was a woman who was just a total busybody. And she, everywhere she went, she caused uproar and disturbed the peace of the church. And she was basically said, please leave our church. <laughs> Don't come to our church. They, were, they told her. Now, that the, the thing what, that they should have done was follow Matthew 18, and she should have been charged and, and asked to repent. And if she didn't repent, then she should have been excommunicated rather than just telling her, get lost. Don't come around here anymore. But this is a crucial topic, very important needs to be emphasized. We'll look at it. Uh, the really juicy stuff, the really good stuff is next week. So make sure you listen to it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word is the only way to go. It's infallible, inerrant, perfect, perfect wisdom, Lord. Help us to obey it. Ingrain it into our minds. Forgive us for the many times we disobey it. We know better. We should, we should obey at all times. To help us to follow uh, love, Christian love, Christian compassion toward our brethren. To not listen to gossip. To follow your pattern of reconciliation and forgiveness at all times. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>